whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. I have George Knapp listening to that UFO podcast and having one hell of a good time. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. As always, my name is Andy. Just before I introduce the guest for the show, I want to very quickly mention a couple of things for people who may not be on social media or constantly on Twitter like, like I am as well. Um, very quickly, you can vote for the podcast in the QTT Media Awards under New Society and Culture. The links will be in the description for this podcast as well. Thank you to everyone who has voted so far. And of course, anytime any of you choose to take the time to vote for the podcast in anything, it is greatly appreciated. A big thank you also to all the new listeners this month and anyone who has signed up as well to support the podcast and myself through Patreon. Really appreciate it. There are some more exclusive pods going up there soon with some more additional listener questions and there's going to be some more stuff added in the coming weeks with myself and dan joining me as well and finally excited to announce the next roundtable is going to be recorded in around one week where dan dave partridge of shadows magazine and undead gaucho are going to join me to talk about the phenomenon in the world of movies so we are going to look at movies throughout the last de- couple of decades and we're going to ask the guys about their favorite representations of the phenomenon in various different movies and more so we want to hear from you uh, your favorite representations of ufos aliens uaps whatever it may be in those sorts of movies send them over ideally via email to ufo uapam at gmail.com or i'll put a public post on the patreon so anyone can jump on and add theirs on there as well and it's easier for me to find them all in one place phew so what a few weeks it's been and continues to be as we march towards a june deadline for the uap task force report I'll put in brackets, hopefully. Former pilots have been joining social media. There's a wave of media from prominent speakers and experts. And finally, the UK looking to take the discussion just a little bit more seriously as well. Dan is joining me on the podcast today. Dan, hello. Hey, Andy. Thanks for inviting me on. It's always a pleasure. And it's uh, doubly a pleasure because Sean is here. Oh, and, and yeah, and Sean's here as well. That Dan, yeah. Did I, I ruin I, it? Did, do you know what? You've ruined it because I had. <laughs> let, do you know what? Let me do it right, and I'm not going to edit this out. And um, we'll just pretend Dan hasn't said anything. Okay. One of those at the forefront of the media wave recently, making his fourth appearance on the podcast, a man quickly becoming one of the faces of the conversation, and there are not many better representatives themselves. Sean Cahill, like Dan. I had half Sean, of welcome to the podcast. Air. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's so good to be back. <laughs> You should have just disconnected. Like, no, no, this, this isn't the level I'm you're out. used to this anymore. Like, this doesn't happen on Amateurs. those other networks. Yeah. Uh, listen, Sean, people straight away, their ears will be pricking up. And I genuinely say there's a lot of new listeners to the podcast. And I am lucky to keep in contact with Sean regularly. And genuinely, two or three times at least a week, I will get a message asking who does the outro to the podcast. 
it's Sean, this Sean, yes, this Sean Cahill. It's called Goblin Problems, and uh, you can find it on YouTube, SoundCloud, and it's it's free for everyone. If you want me to send you it, I'm happy forwarding on copies as well. And Sean, I, I have actually been asked if you have produced other music as well. Sure. Do you want um, to talk a little I, bit on never that? Never professionally, no. It's always been a hobby. Uh, it was something I, I always did to pass my time, and since retirement, I've had a chance to to really delve into it. And I'm, I'm not a great live musician. Um, I'm, I'm very much someone who plays in, in, uh, logic pro or garage band, but, uh, I enjoy it a great deal. And there, there's some other songs on my, um, on my SoundCloud and I've produced a, some score work for a few small productions. I helped, uh, Dave Beatty with, uh, the Nimitz encounters, believe it or not, even though I'm not, uh, actually in front of the camera because I wasn't available due to uh, history channel at the time. Uh, Dave reached out to me and he allowed me to provide some music for the uh, the encounter, the Princeton encounter portion of the uh, of the film. So that was really nice. And Dave oh, has cool. provided a question later on as well. So that's that's good. Um, and while Sean has said he's not a live musician, that doesn't mean one day he won't play an acoustic unplugged version <laughs> of the you outro for us as well. Me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I just need yeah, a lot that. of time. I don't even know how to play my <laughs> yeah. own songs. Uh, a lot of time and a lot of bourbon. Yeah, that's fine. So listen, folks, there, there were so many questions sent in. It was it was ridiculous. So if you don't hear your question, I apologize. But there was a lot to get through as well. Just before we get to listener questions, and I, I'm wasting enough time, Ryan Graves has tweeted out today um, about a six-tweet thread. And some of it, for me, seemed pretty interesting information. And it got a lot of people's um, eyes and uh, lighting up on Twitter. Uh, Dan, do you mind just running through quickly what uh, Ryan was talking about today regarding the gimbal object? Yeah, of course. Um, for people who aren't on Twitter, we've just had uh, the, the absolute pleasure of having Ryan Graves and Alex Dietrich join. Um, and they're imparting wisdom and details on us um, and some fierce sass on Alex part as well. Um, and yeah, re- really kind of fleshing out the, these encounters. So Ryan's tweet thread was just about how in the video, obviously in the gimbal video, we just see the one object and the rotation. However, Ryan explained that there was a kind of wedge formation of objects just in front uh, of that uh, gimbal object that, banked in a way that you would expect aircraft to bank as they were banking they kind of lost the wedge formation and then refound it as they came back around but while that was happening the actual gimbal object did not bank it was kind of making those you know it was still making those erratic movements that we're also used to hearing about sean i asked you to have a quick check on that as well and i don't know if that's stuff you knew about do you want to talk a little bit on that particular movement is that something you knew about already i did not what are your um, thoughts on i that? was aware that there were other contacts um i'm pretty sure that i think the uh the verbals were uh there's a whole fleet of them look on the asa um and now we get a, a better picture yeah. of that i'm really i'm really appreciative of uh of ryan coming forward and talking about that because it gives us a better detailed uh idea of what was really going on out there i think that's a much um that's a lot heavier than i thought it was and it's when you're talking about a formation in front of an object is there anything that suddenly comes to your mind or what you're thinking if you hear there's an object that seems to be escorted almost by other objects is that something again you've come across in the past when looking at well UAPs, in studying UFOs? the lore over the last few years there there have been a few patterns that do come out in the witness testimony it doesn't always corroborate perfectly to the recent radar data that we've seen 
but uh, it's not unusual to see more than one craft, uh, to see a formation of some kind, to see other craft in company, or even some smaller craft seeming to tend to a larger craft. And that's what I was going to ask it. Is it uncommon to see different craft together? Uh, I wouldn't call it uncommon, no. I, w- I would say that it, it uh, represents a, a distinct percentage of the sightings. I wouldn't want to quote that number, but it's, uh, there's enough of them that, no, that's not unusual. Well, listen, there's a lot of questions in here as well, and we're going to get straight into them. The first one is sharpened to the point as well from Dave Smethurst. Uh, Dave, thanks for the questions as always. Does Sean think there is an underwater base uh, of UAPs near Ooh. Catalina Island? Um, I err on the. I'm, I'm going to not beat around the bush with these. I think people would probably hang me in the square. Um, I would err on the side of, of a possible yes on that one, um, only because I'm not saying it's likely necessarily, but I am saying that given the fact that they seem to keep being in the same areas, um, you can get water anywhere on the planet if they want water, um, unless they really like the fish in that area. Um, you know, then it's, it it could just be the military assets are the, um, are the attractor, but, um, I don't know what the attractor is, but I think that given the technology, I don't think keeping station on the bottom of the seafloor or, uh, going beyond that with possibly a, a pressurized, place to rest uh doesn't seem beyond me for that level of technology and dan i do want to hear your thoughts on that one we have we have talked about those kind of things in the past as well but uh catalina islands very popular area obviously famous for for certain incidents as well what are your thoughts on what may be under the water out there you want me to say kind of magical beings and i'm not going to um it, it's a mystery we we know more about space than we do about the bottom of our oceans and you know, there are some areas of the world that are kind of pockmarked with things like lava tubes and things like that that are really hard to explore. So even the people, you know, like James Cameron, uh, explorer of the sea, uh, even the places that he's been down, you know, like Mariana's Trench, um, there's still no guarantee you're just going to land on the bottom and find what we're looking for, you know. Um, it's going to be a little bit further out of the box than, than just a building on the, the, the seafloor. Absolutely. Thank you for that one, gents. And Dave also asked, and this was something that had just slipped my mind as well, what has happened to the documentary that Sean and his friends were filming along with Lou Elizondo? Has it all been filmed and was anything Well, a few things found? happened with that. Actually, we um, everything was going swimmingly and then the news cycle changed. Um, our proof of concept was completed. We had some ideas for it. We had some different ideas of, of ways that we wanted to go with it and and who would be involved and who would be where but logistically it never quite came together in the end and then when the news cycle picked up for us this this current um heat wave that we're in right now you know being all over the place you know doing three four five interviews a day for 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 a few of us um that's this is this is the peak of the wave but we started paddling months ago and so at the end of our project untitled uap we found ourselves having to pivot in one direction or the other and frankly um infotainment and entertainment and television and um you know that long pipeline of of content creation and quality assurance and then distribution 
that's a long period of time to inform folks. And when, as I keep saying, when the news cycle changed, we saw an opportunity to go in a different direction and to access more of the population with more salient information than we ever thought we could on television with a, with a, you know, with a structured program. And that sounds like a positive, but does that mean that for yourself and Lou and the, the others involved in the project, things moved quicker well, they, than you expected? they certainly did. Things did move quicker than we expected. And that's not to say that we had any kind of timetable, but we had no indication that, that we had finally landed that grappling hook into the mountain of, of, um, of mainstream media. So I'll be honest with you when I say that, that across the board, a financial hit was taken. Not a, not a red cent was made. No distribution was made. The footage may never even be used. Um, we had some interesting things to share. We had some ways that we thought that we could go out there and show real science and show, um, you know, real time observational data and, and start educating folks on this larger idea of a real uap phenomenon that's not steeped in the nonsense we've all we're all familiar with that can that can mess the subject up but yeah i mean i'm not going to quote the financials on it but you could have bought a car with what we uh what we're not going to make back easily well hopefully something does come of that one day and you get some of that back as well but i know you guys aren't in this to make money because you're certainly not coming on podcasts like this for, for your time for any any cash incentives anyway <laughs> i'll send you another bottle of whiskey at some point uh Dave Lorimer had a question. Now, he talks about Lou and others commenting in the past about Greek mythology, and he wants to know, is there any connection in your view, Sean, that the Aegeus system is potentially attracting UAPs? I have to point out the fact that that's a super conflated question. So we went we went from, from myth into the fact that, that the radar system is named after a mythical uh, weapon of Zeus, um, I don't see a connection. Yes. I don't think the UAPs are like, they named it after Zeus's weapon. Let's check it out. But I do think that, um, if we're, if I'm getting out of the joke that I think I was trying to tell for a second, um, the upgrades to the radar to me seem to correspond to, um, to, to flaps or, or massive sightings. I think I confused some of the audience the other day on a different podcast when I said flaps, I think folks who are, who know the UFO genre understand what that means but that just means over an area over a, a geographical area there were numerous sightings of probably the same object object or similar objects so yeah i think that i think the radar upgrades are probably connected um it begs the question of why is the technological boundary so seemingly close throughout history and why does the technological boundary seem to own to, to always just drag slightly ahead? That's probably a good place for Dan. You had one, a question for Sean on his comments recently on, uh, I believe it was Cuomo Prime. Um, doesn't work out in a Scottish accent saying that surname, but it was the 100 to 1,000 years. Dan, do you want to frame that? It probably follows on nicely. Yeah, um, basically... Sean's appearance on Cuomo was was fantastic. It was, it was gr really great to see you on screen. You're so present in the community and you're so so great at communicating some ideas. It was good to see you on there. Um, and you made a comment about the technology being 100 to 1,000 years ahead of where we are. And I just wondered for people who are intrigued by that comment, if you could maybe just elaborate Certainly, that's on your been a, um, that's That was a serious shock because I've seen myself quoted as the government 
in regards to that phrasing and instead of as an individual uh, expressing an opinion. So, but I will say this, um, we're talking anti-gravity. We're talking um, absolute control of what is seen. So, com- so uh, let's call it perfect stealth. Um, I know people would argue that point because obviously we see them all the time. That's a whole another sociological question as to whether or not they want us to, or whether they have crap technology that, that, that malfunctions all the time. I don't know. But, um, I have to say that when I read all the dirds and then when I examine all of the data that's in the public about the same technology, and when I listen to the experts in the field of quantum physics and astrophysics and string theory and other things like that, um, it's clear that the leaders in our, in those fields, that they claim that this level of technology is is much farther ahead of us than we are now. A lot of the um, a lot of the mathematicians and the, the people who get heavy into the numbers, uh, they often feel like we're a lot closer than that. But they're, I think they're speaking about something different than production and operation and actual theoretical modeling. Yeah, you mean they're potentially talking about producing papers that hypothesize that we could potentially do this as opposed to let's get in touch with tesla and Certainly. roll a we've couple been, of these we've off been the discussing line. the Alcuberry drive since the 90s i believe um some of some of these ideas are not new at all um and a lot of people armchair uh skeptics as well like to reach for these simple answers and go ah well it's all hogwash because i know this one thing happened one time and that's it's that's horrible research it's the old TR3B comment, isn't it, that comes up in the, all the time on yeah. that one that, yeah, we've got we've got those. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure, show me. Um, on that as well, though, I, I just want to pick up on the language being used because it seems people like yourself, Lou, Chris Mellon, others coming out, I, I'll just come out and ask it, Sean, like, do you tactically place certain phrases and comments like that in interviews? Because we hear things like, if you do a series of interviews over a couple of years, everyone's always picking something out. Same with Lou or Chris or anyone else. And is it deliberate or is it just that this stuff comes up eventually? Or is it because of the timing, you start to say things? Because a lot of people seem to wonder that. If it's tactical. Uh, tactical in the moment, perhaps. Um, you know, there's that moment where you decide, am I going to push myself off this cliff and say this thing or not? Um, because I'm going to have to you know, you reap what you sow, you know, I'm in the middle of that right now, um, with some of the things I said, obviously, but no, there's, there's no, there's, there is no ahead of time call on any of these. Um, you know, I talk to you guys a lot. I talk to Dan almost every day and I've been on interviews since I finished my housework this morning. You know, you and I, you and I were saying that, you know, you were, you were doing something. I've been mopping the floor and doing dishes in between interviews. There's, there's no, team behind me there's no one else in the room except my dog and my cat Uh, my kids are upstairs zooming at school so for those who think that there's like this strategic tactical plan and all this other stuff no we've just been working our butts off and in that moment that's that's my belief and i was asked in frame he framed the question right that i felt like i'm gonna go for it i'm gonna say how i feel about this and that's what a lot of that is is we're finally getting an opportunity to some people are asking the right questions so that we can we can give answers that we can back up if they want to ask about them later. And I'm going to ask, have you said anything with all that media frenzy and the wave of media, the flaps of media for a, a terminology used before? Have you said anything afterwards you've thought I shouldn't have said that 
or anything you would you would take back or change? If I could have found a way to say my 100 to 1,000 year comment and, and ensure that people would attribute it to an individual rather than the U.S. government, um, I would have framed it more carefully, certainly. I thought I had done my due diligence on that. But I think we all know, no offense uh, to present company, but you, you, you can't trust the media to always take your con- the context of the speaker and, and give dignity to it. We've got a lot of questions on technology and the interviews, 60 minutes, all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to go slightly off the beaten track for a moment just to break it up for you. Walker has a question asking you, have you had any contact with the Bledsoe family? And if not, what are your thoughts on their story? I have not. um, No personal contact. I have three paintings hanging in my stairwell that are based on some stories that I was told by uh, Lou and some of the crew from when, uh, when they had met them. Um, those are relatively private and they're, they're, they're saved for another person one day. Um, but no, I've had no contact with the blood. So their story is, um, is very interesting to me. Um, it matches stories of a lot of other people as well. Dan, you had a question on a, a story Sean told on the big phone home. Um, I've got a question, but if you don't mind asking that first, it would, it'll depend how I frame the question I would follow up with. If you want to unmute yourself, Dan, that would be wildly appreciated by both myself and the audience listening. I'm, I'm having a, a great time on this interview. I started by spoiling. I've done a mute thing. I'm doing it so you, you guys man. don't have to. That's <laughs> the way I think of it. Thanks. <laughs> so on the big phone home, there was a, a, a really lovely kind of subtle moment where you told the story about uh, an event in your past um, that was, I think, the first time you'd kind of shared that. Um, and I wondered if you might share the story of your heart attack again, just so people that didn't hear that might might be familiar with the story. Um, and also kind of let us know how you're doing now. I, I've had a lot of people ask me, is Sean okay? Um, okay, Dan, because it's you. I'll talk about it. Um, 2000, it was Friday the 13th, <laughs> April of 2012. Um, we were off the coast of Africa. It was the night of, uh, the big bingo game on board the USS Macon Island. Um, I was the chief master at arms on board, uh, and the command investigator. Um, I had, I worked for a senior chief petty officer and a, uh, a lieutenant was my, uh, security officer. And I had a pretty, um, pretty professional group of folks I was working with. Um, I was very stressed out at the time. I wasn't being the best husband and father in the world. Um, I was drinking heavily when I was pulling into port, I was smoking a copious amounts of cigarettes and I lived off of yelling at people and, um, and, and coffee. And that was about it. Um, I had, I found myself, uh, I was leaving the the chief petty officers messing area where we live. And I had, I reached up and pulled myself out of the, uh, the scuttle because, uh, during below a certain level, we have all the, uh, all the decks secured. So I had to go through a hatch and I kind of did a pull up on the way out because I had missed going to the gym that day. And my left arm started to feel quite tight. I went back to my office and I, I worked for a little while. Um, and then eventually I realized that I was smart enough to know that I was experiencing a few of the symptoms of a heart attack and being a first responder, it, it, I, I knew that I needed to at least go embarrass myself in medical. Um, I went up there. I spoke to the, the senior chief petty officer who was on just kind of in his office because there was no emergency. The, the 
battle triage area, for lack of a better word, the sick bay that's ready to take the Marines. Um, it wasn't manned. Anyway, to make a long story short, I um, they called called everybody up, the cardiologist on board and everything. I was very lucky. Um, they had no signs of a heart attack. They thought I might have been having a panic attack. Uh, turns out 30 minutes later, all of the symptoms showed up and I put my clothes back on quickly and went back up to medical. And uh, that was it. I had my, my massive heart attack on the table. Um, it took 12 hours to get the ship within range of uh, an African country called Djibouti, where we were, uh, where we were um, closest to. We were on our way up into the, uh, up to, up to wash off uh, uh, the dust from the Middle East from our equipment before we went back to the States up to it, uh, I believe Aqaba, Jordan. But the, I was evacuated uh, to Djibouti the next morning via, uh, well, they gave me a clot buster. I had a 70, 30% chance. The doctor said, basically, you're not going to make it. The, uh, the ship's going to take a long time to get within helo range. We have to give you a clot buster. Uh, I don't remember the name of the compound, but it, had, it was a very high chance that I was going to bleed out. Uh, but I said, go for it. Um, I got to talk to my wife on the phone. Um, in case I didn't make it that day to fix a few things. Um, Learjet up to Germany. Uh, I spent a few days there. Uh, they put in a stint. Um, I had what is classically called an out of body experience when they put in the stint. Um, after that, it's been a long road of recovery, uh, of the trauma of the event. I'm fine now. Um, I've been practicing a, uh, a very clean, uh, keto based lifestyle for quite a long time. Um, my heart shows no damage. Now my, my cardiologist claims that, uh, I somehow not quite, not that mysteriously it happens, but, um, I was able to heal the, the heart muscle. Um, yeah. Thanks for sharing that as well. Thank I you. think Dan's going to say thanks too. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, do you think on that you would still be as involved or would you even have got involved in, in what you have now without that experience? You know, um, that's a good question. Um, it changed me quite a bit, uh, but it didn't change me enough. I needed more kicks in the proverbial ass as the years went by to, um, to get where I am today. Uh, yeah, it, it, I don't know. I can't say, um, there were other subsequent things that I had a dream that really dedicated me to the, uh, the more metaphysical and spiritual things that we discuss sometimes. Um, as far as UAP goes, I, that's completely dedicated to Lou coming out. I, I can't, I won't put it on anything else. And I, I, I'll go to my, I'll go to the mattresses for that dude. Yeah, no, and thanks for sharing that. Uh, next question from Kreuzer. Uh, noting the CNN interview on Cuomo Prime, it leaned on the threat of UFOs entering US airspace. The phenomenon has been violating US airspace for 50 plus years. He doesn't believe the threat is big enough to sell to the general public to get the buy-in. No evidence has been presented so far. The phenomenon has attacked or looked like attacking US naval air or surface assets. Sean, do you believe the phenomenon is a perceived threat purely because it outpaces human technology, or is it the only viable way to get the phenomenon in the media's attention? <clears throat> I think that's an excellent question. It's very well framed. Um, I find that I'll, I'll say that in the beginning of that question, it's leading because when we talk about something violating uh, American airspace, for example, um, 
who 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 sets the boundaries of that and who and who has to abide by it um if these are things that don't fall under the under the geneva convention etc they're probably not violating anything they're probably just going about their business but that's that's an opinion and an assumption and i think we should start there and work our way out and see if we find if we see hostile activity but um the question for me is when we talk about a threat narrative okay i i i I hate to say i resent that phrase but i do because it's only being used by people who are trying to make money off of the fear-based ideology behind a threat narrative i don't have a threat narrative i have a scientific and an investigatory and a military martial viewpoint if i see something that is coming towards the area that i'm tasked to protect i intend to identify it to provide boundaries around it until i find out if it's friend or foe we're in a weird spot with this now. So you can go on a place like CNN and you can get a certain slant and you can go on a, an outlet like Fox and you can get a certain slant. You can go on one like uh, maybe a, a, you know, a, a far left leaning green, um, green party type show and you could get a completely different look at it. I don't feel the phenomena is a threat. Could the phenomena be a threat? Sure. Under a lot of different circumstances, I'm sure if we started poking what we're seeing out there, it's going to poke right back. But we need to find out more information before we start determining what's going to alarm us and what isn't. I think we should be alarmed that, holy crud, there they are. They're here. In fact, they're right there. But now we need to slow down and go, okay, well, we all seem to be all right, don't we? Let's examine this. Next question I'm quite intrigued uh, with because I'm not sure how you're going to answer it when I was reading it. So this is from Craig and he wants to know what aspect of this would you like to see addressed by research or through declassification or acknowledgement within a government, group of governments or from the first, position the of The very power? first thing that I would like to see declassified is, is a workable, usable history of sightings that, that, were, um, that were not debunked or or simply brushed under the carpet um i'd like a history of the the relevant programs i'd like to know what they studied and at the end of the day what i want to find out is what didn't we study what's missing um there's what i call the yucky parts of this that involve the uh, things like abduction or cattle mutilation and things like that which i stay away from at the moment i know that there is forensic data i know that there's physical data i know that there is eyewitness testimony and uh regressive uh, therapy testimony to be utilized there. But I feel like that is should be separated from the nuts and bolts aspect until we are 100% sure that the nuts and bolts aspect that we're observing on radar and, and in other areas is 100% connected to this other aspect. And I don't have proof of that yet. On that question, just to follow up then, do you think what we have had declassified or leaked or released, whatever people want to say over the last couple of years and more recently the the Omaha footage, we had the the acorn slash blimp footage from the debrief that, that got leaked. Has that been helpful to what you and your colleagues are trying to achieve Mm. or has it hindered? I want to be careful here because in no way do I want to disrespect um, the amazing work of gentlemen like uh, George Knapp or Jeremy Corbell. Um, I want to first point out the fact that I don't think a lot of people understand just how important those gentlemen have been to this fight. 
and that those gentlemen in some ways for a period of time would seem to me like they represented some of the only trusted agents that there may have been to get some of this information out. So I won't hear people um, besmirch them. However, um, I don't have a chain of custody on those on those videos. I don't know how they got from a ship or a unit all the all, you know to, to George or to Jeremy. Um, I do trust them. However, I'm an investigator, so I don't touch those videos because I don't have a chain of custody. I don't have the, the origin information that they have. And so all of it's up in the air. So when you get people who are, who are armchair skeptics who want to debunk something like that, I don't even give the debunking any daylight because I don't have a proper, a proper piece of evidence to work with. And is that, again, I go back to when we done the Room 101 special, you mentioned having one source and a video on its own is no use, a photograph on its own, a piece of testimony is no use. You have to have more. It's got to be the sum of its parts. So there's not enough with what's being released for you to, right. and to that's, really and consider it solid. Unfortunately, I'm going to give away something here. When I say something's compelling, I just, I'm saying, let me know when you got more evidence. I mean, those are those are really, really interesting photographs and and video and other things and i don't think anyone's trying to pull one over on us those are anomalous and they're unidentified the question is is are they exotic or are they near peer spoofing i don't know cool next up jared asks uh, or says the media coverage has been great but it feels like the five minute segments are way too rushed for such a complex topic now you're living that at the moment sean what's it like going through those really short intense i've had a chance to discuss uh with with dan what my um my technique for interviews is and it's it's actually kind of meditation based so i kind of give myself over to the conversation a little bit and i allow i've i respond to what's said um it's it's hectic the amount of energy that it takes to to live in that space for that period of time um and not fumble your words or worry about what you're going to say next or try to get ahead of the speaker to just be in the moment um it takes a lot of energy out of you so when i'm done with an interview um you know there's a big sigh of relief <laughs> But yeah, so it's quite intense. And Dan, you had a follow-up, I think, that would be quite good for that on uh, media reception. Yeah, that's right. Um, you, you've done a, a number of interviews in other parts of the world now. And I just wondered if you could speak about the kind of reception um, and the way that the presenters you speak to in those parts of the world um, discuss the yeah, subject. Yeah, I've been um, very fortunate in the last week, as, we, uh, as we've discussed, to be on CNN here in the uh, States. I've been on Globo News in Brazil. Um, I was on Alhura uh, Network in the Middle East. Um, let me think. I've been on, on shows in the UK that have outreach all the way through Europe. So basically, I've been able to hit um, the African continent, all, all, everything but Asia, and Antarctica in the last week. And presumably in this modern world, those, those areas are going to have access to these streams as well. Um, it's been incredible. It's been a whirlwind. Um, at no time have we been ridiculed. Um, the, the Brazilian interview was very, uh, reminded me very much of like a 60 minutes interview, uh, would in the, in the States. Um, the interview that I had with Alhura, uh, questioned 
why we didn't shoot them down. Um, they had a rather more aggressive uh, slant to their questioning, which I felt like I had to kind of put some some boundaries around to make sure that I didn't get words put in my mouth. Um, as far as the Aussies go, I think they wouldn't surprise us. They were Aussies. They were awesome. The the gentlemen were uh, witty, and uh, but they treated it with respect. And uh, I didn't. I've never. I've not felt ridiculed uh, in this subject ever during an interview uh, whatsoever. And obviously, you've been on the UK radio, which is good to hear over here as well uh, on Talk Radio. How how did you find that? Because we've got a, a vested interest in that with UAP Media UK, and I I managed to get somehow on the BBC last week, and I got called for an interview, which was great. And doing my first one of those, Dan called up after you had been on Talk Radio and made a great point, very eloquently, based on what you had said as well. How did you find the UK treatment of the subject? I thought that Patrick was very um, respectful. He was very open-minded. Um, he runs he runs a fast and tight ship there on his show, so he has to he has to be able to pivot back and forth with a lot of subjects. But I felt that he treated it with dignity uh, and class. The conversation that I had later in the day with uh, with Howard Hughes, uh, which I'm not sure if that's aired yet, but um, that was equally, um, frankly, dignified. Uh, he he the, they treated the subject with a great deal of respect. Um, and they took what I had to say on board and I, I didn't feel ridiculed whatsoever. It was, it was very refreshing to see a lack of stigma. I know you were very popular with the hosts as well. So hopefully that's been passed through the, the chain of media in the UK and we get to hear more of you and see more of you as well. Um, couple more questions a lot of these have been from the patreon so far and then i've got a whole host so we'll try and get through as many as we can now this one's a little bit political but i think it's a fair question so from brendan he thinks that seems the government is trying to thread a very difficult needle which is the disclosure of advanced technologies of a potentially non-human origin while simultaneously not admitting to 70 plus years of cover-up and a stigma that they helped create does Sean think our leadership can or should pull that off? So I think that's a very pragmatic way to look at it, but we have to be careful how we assign motive here. Um, again, I shy away from calling anything the government because does that mean that, that four years ago those people were the government for what happened 70 years ago and now that we have a new administration, does that mean they're the government for the past mistakes? Um, but I, I won't... I won't uh, I won't try to, you know, work around the answer on that. We need to, we need to come up with whistleblower protections. Um, we need to find a way for the sins of the past to be uh, not erased. But um, there are so many aspects to this. We could dedicate a two-hour show to just talking about what it would be like if everything the UFO, the UFO community thought was true turned out to be true. I, I can't imagine how you would ever. I don't imagine how I don't know how a government could continue if they hadn't already put protections for past mistakes in place for something like that. The, I think the reparations would be insane to try to, you know, you would have people pulling class action lawsuits with the military for not protecting the airspace and things like that. And that's that's ridiculous. We we wouldn't be able, what are we going to get out of that? So I know that there are people that feel that there are edges of this phenomenon that the government is responsible for and that's that's we're going to have to investigate that if that's the case. I don't know anything about that, but um, it, it's going to be wild. It's really going to be, it's that we have a wild future ahead of us as we start uncovering these things. We're going to have to be very mindful and pragmatic about the decisions we make. Can I ask just a follow up on that? If on the 1st of July, 
the report has come out. There's been a little bit of time to digest it, and we get some kind of confirmation that there is a non-human technology present, and we know X, Y, and Z. Do you think it's even still likely at that point we're going to find out about all those past events, even with that happening? And I mean things like Roswell, Betty and Barney Hill, Travis Walton, or do you think that's just going to stay consigned to the past? And we, because the mainstream, the 99% who don't have an interest or a vested take on the subject, don't know or necessarily care about all that stuff. All they will know is there's something else out there. Let's look at it. Are they going to care about the past or do you think that will just be the focus on the future? It's a really good question. I I think it's, it's, um, we'll see what the, um, what the uh, task force gives up first. If, if they're successful and they get even a modicum of, of buy-in from the other departments within, you know, and, and agencies, et cetera, within the United States government that have, um, that have explored this topic. And let's be real. I'm not going to provide a list and, uh, of, of agencies right now, but there were numerous agencies over the 70 year period who have, who have investigated this. A number of them are embarrassed over the fact that they, in my opinion, that they investigated this and then never figured out what it was and never did anything with it. Um, but there are other agencies, large agencies, let's say within the department of defense that have obviously, um, aided in studying this over the course of that period and have never stopped. Um, it's time to tell us what you found out. It's time to tell all of us what we found out. It's, it's, and declassify the portions that are safe to declassify. I think you guys know how I feel about that. I don't think everything should be declassified. Some things are very dangerous, like recipes to chemical weapons should not be openly on the internet. So before I digress too much further. No, that's right. Next question. I'm going to give you a breather to have a, a quick drink. Dan, I'll give you it first and then I'll ask Sean to come in with his thoughts as well. Dan, do you want to just share your thoughts? Because I don't think we've had the chance to talk about this openly yet. We've done it on Twitter back and forward and through various chats we're in. But uh, President Biden, uh, and the wording of uh, of the question is dodging the UAP question. I didn't see it like that, but I've shared my thoughts online, Dan. What what did you think about the, the question put to President Biden and how he reacted? Well, the from, from my experience, they have a very... Um, Biden and Obama have a, a close relationship. You know, they work together a lot um, when when Obama was in the White House. And I saw it as kind of, I, I imagined a scenario in my head where maybe behind the scenes, Biden was maybe asked when he was going to address it by Obama and he played a little coy. So Obama made the move for him. Uh, which drew a kind of bit of of banterous hitting the ball back towards Obama. Um, so, so I see it as playful, not not necessarily as some people have have read it as him kind of saying, "Ask Obama again," because he might give you a different answer that we know what these are. I see it as more of a kind of playful, bat it back across. Um, we'll get another comment from Obama because, of course, people will ask him. And as far as I'm concerned, Biden kind of put a target on his back by trying to or by appearing to to avoid the question. So that question was from UAP Disclosure Now on Twitter. Um, same to you, Sean. What do you think about uh, President Biden's reaction? I fear that what we saw was the stigma coming out of a uh, from an, a different generation that may have a completely different view on this subject that has already made up his mind on the subject. Um, I hate to say that. 
I don't want to uh, be accused of, uh, of ageism at all. Um, but I will say that as, as I have gotten older, I know that my, um, I have had to be very careful not to set my opinions in stone um, and to make sure that they're malleable as new information comes along. But I fear that what we saw was him caught off guard with something that at his age and station that he didn't think he was going to have to deal with. And it may be poppycock to him and perhaps he needs another briefing. Now, forgetting politics, because I, I don't have a vested interest in US politics per se. I don't care red, blue, whatever different parties. It's politicians. It's all the same thing. <laughs> and, you know, Sean's uh, being funny on video, folks, you know, yep. So, but for me, I would ask then, is Kamala Harris a better person to ask that question to? And do you think you would get a similar response from yes. her? Uh, full stop. I think that Kamala Harris has an understanding of the subject that is nuanced within the United States government. And I, I do think that, uh, that Ms. Harris is, is where a lot of people should, uh, should possibly focus their attention. Do you think they are going to be the people to help move this forward or will, will they have any part to play in what happens after you know, the I think if, report? If, I think it's very important that the people that are involved with informing the situation, I got to be careful here because people will put words in my mouth. But I think if we had the people that end up having an opportunity to brief um, Vice President Harris, they have to be careful how they approach this. There's a lot of people who want to rush forward and they want to tell people, we know what's happening. We know what's going on. I'll tell you where they're from. Don't listen to those guys. And we're, we're, we're trying to stay shoulders above those people with honest and correct data that's that's verifiable and that's backed up with the record. Um so I think she's the right person to approach. I think the people that get there are going to be what determine whether or not it becomes useful in the future. Next up, it's a really difficult question for me to ask, not because of the quality, but the person's name is about the most difficult I can pronounce with a Scottish accent. So Carl Mann, it sounds like I'm saying Carl in Irish, but it's C-A-R-L. I you said the Here's same Carl. word over and over again. Um, what is the best... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said that like four different ways, and it just sounds the same. Like I, I could be saying various different things, but and do you know what? Carl's actually a comedian, so he'll appreciate that. Um, what is the best case outcome if the task force report turns out to be a bit of a dud? Uh, we've heard the phrase "nothing burger" getting thrown about and all that kind of stuff. Would it at least inspire more members of Congress to speak? I truly out, Sean, hope so, because um, I feel that there would be near open rebellion in the uh, the people that are growing around the subject because it's not just ufology; it's not just um, fans of of late night cable TV anymore or radio. This is this is people are interested in this subject across the board now, whether they think that the timing on it is strange, which is just hyperbole in my in my opinion, because we've all been working so hard to get here. The fact that they just noticed that we've arrived doesn't mean that it's a nefarious uh, plan of some sort, but um, kind of lost my train of thought. Sorry. Uh, no, that's OK. Next up, I'm going to ask a question from Kim, and this is one I think if you've listened to the show for a long time, you'll know the answer. People might wonder why when they speak to you, Sean, I and others mention Lou Elizondo quite a lot. They must be like, why does this guy constantly want to talk about Lou? But you're very close friends with Lou. And with so many new people to the subject that may have just seen your interviews or online or heard them on radio, Kim wants to know, how did you initially meet Lou? And what what was it about Lou that made him you want to join up with him and kind of start the journey I, uh, you've gone on? 
a couple of days after the uh, the New York Times article came out, and it took probably actually maybe four or five days of, of discussion between my wife and I, I finally wrote um, I wrote to Lewitt to the Stars Academy, and I told him who I was, uh, where I lived, what I'd seen. And that if he wanted to verify any of the data of the events, I was present on the bridge and I could cross-reference things and identify people on board the ship and help out. It was nine months later, I got a, uh, an email back from To The Stars. And then uh, when I confirmed the receipt of that email, I got a phone call from, from Luis Elizondo. And I, know who he wa- I knew who he was. And I had spent the intervening nine months learning everything I could about him, his program, where he came from, what he had done, UFOs, UAP, you name it, everything. Because um, if this guy was full of it, I was going to take him down. I was going to make sure that, that this person coming out of government trying to get rich off of the video of the thing that we saw in 04 was not going not gonna to make it. Um, then I met Lou. And he... When we first met here in San Diego, after Anthony LePay came to the house with the crew and, and, and filmed um, the portion that was that was here, um, we did an interview portion down by the pier. And Lou got changed in the parking lot. I was waiting on the pier, and he came walking down the pier. And both of us looked at each other and just got these huge grins on our faces and kind of shook our head and then started the interview. Um, it, we had a weird minute where we felt like we recognized each other and we were sharing that. But then after the interview, I was in a rush to get the microphones off because I had some things I wanted to talk about off the record. Um, he'd asked me a lot of interesting questions. I'd gotten a really great, I hate to say vibe from him, but I, I really trusted him. I've been trust, I've been trained to pay attention to people's, uh, micro expressions and their haptics and their body movements and things. And, and I w- I really got a vibe that I could trust this guy. So as soon as we got the mics off, I said, Hey, if you're not full of crap and if you're not trying to make a buck and you're really going to investigate this and and bring honest to goodness truth to the people, I said, dude, I'm retired right now and I'm, I'm enjoying it, but I'll put my boots back on and I'll go to work for you. And it's been nonstop ever since. Um, we're, we're, we're close friends. Um, I don't have I'm not privy to classified information or, or state secrets or any of that nonsense. We've developed a way to, to speak to each other and maintain the dignity of his, of his, of the classification system and his, his NDAs, et cetera. But I've been able to, he's been able to share some impressions with me and they have helped form my worldview. But, um, but beyond that, this is work for us. This is, this means a great deal to us. We, we truly believe in trying to get the truth out to as many people as possible. Now, one of the follow-ups for that then was from Richard, and he wants to know, how is Lou doing? Because he feels Lou's tone has been more feverish recently. He's been a little bit more feisty, potentially, in interviews. Have have you seen that come across in Lou in his interviews recently, in the way he's talking? He's a little bit more up for the fight, I think Lou's got his dander up a little bit. Um, This is a very pivotal time in in the fight, so to speak. Um, It's... Number one, lose work in damn near 24 hours a day. Um, you guys happen to know this is my th- third interview today, and I have one after this. Um, I'm handling that operational tempo pretty well, but I'm not flying back and forth all over the country, and I'm not under the same stress Lou is. So if some people want to ask how he's doing, I'd say Lou's doing fine, but he could he could use the positive support. He could use people listening to the message he's putting out there. And instead of trying to find out what he really means, listen to the words that he's saying. Um, he's pretty direct in what he says. 
Um, but I, I, I'll say this. Um, Lou's an incredibly strong man, um, but he's a man just like the rest of us. So I hope he gets a rest soon. Awesome. Dan, I think you want to come in on that. This Unmuted, guy. ideally, for the audience. This guy. Second time. I know this guy. Amateur. Amateur. Would you believe I used to work in technology as well? Yeah, you've told that. I just realized we have our own yeah. chat. I'm like, who are these guys? Oh, it's Dan and Andy. Look at that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, oh you're, you're, you're going to break the fourth wall if you do that. I don't know if you have a fourth wall via podcasting, but yeah, I just got a chat. I'll add, I, do you know what? Spoilers. Um, we've got a chat, and I just asked Dan, did he have a question off the back of that, which he does. So uh, I said, go for it. Uh, 8.54 p.m. recording time. So yeah, on you go, Dan. <laughs> um, so this past week, uh, some people might have seen you on Expedition X in an episode called Aliens uh, of the Deep. Um, And I just wondered if you'd mind talking a little bit about that experience where you and Gary were interviewed and also whether you'd seen the episode, because in the episode there are two particularly uh, interesting bits of footage, one where they kind of set up essentially like a a mobile sky hub um, and they see an object in the sky that makes some 90-degree turns, which uh, there's some pretty startling movement, and then it kind of dives towards what they think is the ocean, uh, but that wasn't quite in frame, so we can't say it. Um, and then there was another bit of footage where they were setting up GoPros around the the boat, um, and one of the presenters saw quite a, a large light in the water that they caught on camera. Um, and I wondered if you'd seen those bits of footage and whether you could talk about them. So uh, at the beginning, you asked about the whole experience. And I'll just say in general, I had a great time with um, with Gary Voorhees. Um, they asked us to come out to Catalina. We were able to take the ferry out together and get to spend some time after not seeing each other in the intervening years since uh, the Tic Tac incident. Um, as far as the footage that you're talking about and the bioluminescence or whatever that was in the water that Phil saw, um Phil and Jessica, the, the hosts that we were with on uh, Expedition X. I didn't see any of that footage until it aired the other night. Um, I had not seen any of the recreations. Um, Gary and I were present for our interview portion at that um, that campground on Catalina Island that was featured. And then I actually immediately left. Um, I didn't hang around for the rest of the night. I had to get back home. I had actually come just from, uh, from on location with untitled UAP. Um, those are, those are hard for me to comment on because again, I don't know anything about those. I don't know how they were captured, um, how they were edited, how they were color graded or what may have been done to the footage to make it presentable for, for the show. But I think all of us realize that that show is a, um, is reality television, I guess. So it's slightly structured, um, that there's a slight, I don't want to take away from it. We would have to ask Phil and Jessica and the producers of that show, the, uh, the providence of that footage. Um, I'm not aware that Lou hasn't said anything to me about that footage either. So I don't, I do not know. I think with the reality show footage for, for anything, whether it's Skinwalker Ranch, if you've done something similar for unidentified, there's always going to be a question thrown out that, Oh, that was handy that you happened to be filming or set something up overnight and you caught something anomalous on camera, it's it's incredibly fortunate. But like you say, you can't say that it's it's not incredibly fortunate and it is something anomalous or it's potentially something far more terrestrial with a more earthly Stephen Greer-esque explanation to it. 
Um, yeah, I think maybe they, I mean, I, they could have possibly done a better job maybe labeling some of it to let us know that if any of it was animation or representation, uh, et cetera. But I have to say that what they captured is not that unusual. That is what goes on out there around the Channel Islands, Catalina, Guadalupe, et cetera. So none of those things were unusual. Those match all of the constant eyewitness reports that, that we received down around Ensenada when we were there and Guadalupe. And even I think uh, I mentioned on another podcast or maybe to you guys on a phone call that I got we got out of the shuttle for the hotel. And I just announced because Gary and I were, were joking with each other. I said, watch this. I'm going to get out and ask everybody who's seen a UFO. And I said, I'll bet you that somebody's going to pipe up. Dude, the, the painters that were getting into the, the shuttle van to go back down to the ferry who'd been house painting all weekend started whipping out their phones and they all had pictures of green things zipping around the air above them. Um, it, it's The quality is the thing, you know, the triangulation, the quality, but yeah, not unusual for that area. Next up, question from Documenting Disclosure. That's a, a new podcast that's starting soon. Some guys on Twitter that I know that were really keen on the subject as well. They want to know that now that more people are coming forward on social media, such as Ryan Graves and Alex Dietrich, do you feel the stigma inside the military That's is an interesting vanishing? question. Um, I've spoken to a lot of military folks. I do it all the time because now... Um, I get recognized on, recognized on occasion. And so at that point, we might as well just have the five-minute combo and see how you feel. 50-50. Um, Strangely enough, it's the uh, senior ranking people, the pilots, the uh, retired captains, uh, admirals, et cetera, that I know in the area that are kind of leaning around the corner at school functions and things and going, hey, man, you're Cahill, right? So that's, that stuff's real, huh? Um, the younger guys, uh, if, if they're into it, they already know. Um, but then you got the same younger guys who, if they, if they don't, if they didn't believe in it before, they haven't paid any attention to a lot of the news. I'm going to address this because a lot of people have mentioned it online and we talked earlier about there's not a lot of money, if at all, to be made in interviews like this or for far bigger networks and mainstream media. Some people have questioned, uh, Alex and Ryan's timing coming online Ryan's had his Twitter account for like nine years. It says there it was set up in 2012, but he's never really posted. And now he's in the conversation um, just after 60 minutes. And Alex is the same. She's came out and done the, the interview. Her name was out there when it, when it shouldn't have been previously, but now it's publicly you know known and talked about. And she's been on camera. She's appeared and some people have questioned the timing and people like that wanting to get rich or get famous and get themselves out there. What would you say to people questioning motives of, of it, these it people? It just speaks on the psychology of the person that's projecting that level of greed, frankly. Um, where's the money at? I don't know, man. Um, if somebody offers me a book deal someday and, and I get to tell the truth about something and they want to give me money, that doesn't bother me. Um, you guys know that, that I'm, I can't stand the idea of selling truth, man. You know, I, and it's, it, it, I guess I use the analogy sometimes when we talk about experiencers, like I say, if, if we're talking about dolphins, you know, an amazing, another creature in another medium where we don't live. When I go down to the beach here by my house and I see dolphins, I don't run home and wake my family up and say that I'm an experiencer and that I experienced dolphins. I, I, witnessed a portion of my of my reality and i observed it 
um, a lot of people, they just want to put all of their ideas and project their beliefs on top of this. I think Ryan and Alex are out here because they saw a 60 Minutes article and because Lou went out there and because Chris went out there and all these other people stood up at a time when they knew they were already ridiculed within their own communities. You know, Alex had to fight to not have her name put out there. It's I'm not complaining because I've tried to get my face in front of this camera to help discuss this for a long time. And I'm finally here. So I'm not going to pretend that I didn't try to get here. But not everybody wanted to get shoved out front and having the courage to stand out front and tell the truth and, and say it with conviction. Where again, where's the money? But but part of me says, how dare you? But I don't I don't want to clutch my pearls right now. No, that's a fair response. Um, Dan, what would you say to that? You're really prominent in social media as well, uh, and you interact with a lot of these people, uh, and you're trusted, which obviously I, I speak to you, and that's how I've got to know you. What do you say to, to kind of people shooting these? Sean wants to come in on that, actually. Oh, is he just laughing on camera? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Dan, what, what, what do you say to that? Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll be polite. Sometimes people can look a gift horse in the mouth. Like Sean said, lots of people are coming out, and the more people that come out, the more people that will come out. That doesn't mean it's planned. That doesn't mean there's a conspiracy. It means that we're all standing on each other's shoulders and making this happen, and we've done that for 70 years. This is just another version of that. Um, I, I welcome more people coming out. I, I love the pilots commenting on Twitter. It's absolutely incredible, and it's a privilege. Um, so, yeah, I I, I don't quite get I can't wait to get phased out because I'm not the most effective speaker. Yeah. I can't wait until someone comes along who's who does this better than I do. That all of us want all of us in this want to be replaced by somebody who can do it better. We just want this to succeed. On that, I'm going to ask you another question on Lou. I know you've got another interview coming up, Sean, so we'll let you go very soon. And I have a ton more questions, so if you could come back soon to to follow up on those. After you've had a break and a, a rest, that would be great. Um, but Uncle Gravity on Twitter was asking, Lou had said recently that he might start smashing dinnerware if the UAP task force report gets whitewashed. Is there anything Sean might have to add regarding raising the provocation in that circumstance? Do you have anything persuasive up your sleeve? Yes. I told you guys I wouldn't beat around the bush and I wouldn't play with words. The answer is yes. I don't want people to speculate too hard on what having something up our sleeves means. But let me also put it in completely um, in completely logical terms. A person with a career like Luis Elizondo and with friends like Chris Mellon uh, that understand the way the government operates, um, when people of that stature who understand how the bureaucracy, excuse me, bureaucracy operates and how to move information, assets, and ideas within that, that, those organizations and between them, when those people realize that something um, has poisoned the well, uh, they, don't, they don't quit. Um, they make sure that water is, is safe for the rest of us to drink uh, before they ever, ever give up. So if Lou says he's ready to break dinner plates, I'd lock up the china. Are we going to see another piece of footage or a photograph a la a black triangle coming out the water before the task force report? Well, in your I think opinion? Uh, uh, an interview that I was on today with uh, George Knapp and Senator Harry Reid, which I was very honored to be in company with the two of them on uh, Nevada Public Radio. Um, George basically said, yep. He said uh, that he and Jeremy have more. 
and uh, there's more rounds in the chamber and they're ready to pull trigger when, when the time is right. So um, I don't know when that time is right. I think that's going to be up, the, up to those gentlemen to, to see or, 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 or to make that decision. But uh, I look forward to what they have to offer. I may not be able to, to verify a chain of custody on it, but if it, if it gets our task force, our, our Department of Defense, and yes, our government as a whole, to uh to speak up or raise an eyebrow and, and open the books i'm all for it one of the last questions I, i've lost it now on the the myriad of questions that i'm not going to get to but they did ask and again sean if you were leading things with this task force report and it or you were involved at a level where you could influence it and it came out and didn't land do you have or have you seen a piece of evidence that you could provide to the public that could totally change the conversation. No, I'm not, I'm not in possession of, uh, of any evidence that would change the conversation. Um, honestly, I, I think that if I was, uh, I would feel deceitful by holding it back. Um, so no, I mean, I, I think you understand that, that when, if, if I were to be, if I were to come into possession of information like that and it were unclassified and it were legal for me to disseminate that information, I would want to do it in the most uh, effective way possible. There might be a delay between receipt and release based on that, but I don't have anything like that right now. Sean, to finish up, what are our next four weeks going to look like and lead up to this task force mm, report? In your I think opinion? you're going to see a lot of people trying to sow discord. I think you're going to see a lot of people that are going to want to get ahead of whatever they're going to release and discount it and say that it's garbage. I think all of your debunkers are going to probably, you know, put on their best ties and, and, and wiggle their webcams around and give us their opinions. Um, but those debunkers come and go. Uh, the programs have remained in place for the last 70 years. So whatever we get next week out of that report is going to inform our next steps. The UAPTF was the first solid step that we have ever had to get up towards UAP truth. So whatever the results of the, uh, of the task forces report, that's going to be our second step. Now, whether we step on it to take over this situation and, and crack it open or whether we get what we deserve, that's what we'll see. Dan, any closing thoughts to, to follow Sean, which isn't an easy task. Uh, I have, I have, am I allowed one more question? <laughs> oh, uh, nope, that's all I've got time for, folks. Thanks for listening. No, yeah, go for it. Go for it, man. Um, I feel like I'm no, I know what the answer is going to be here, but I kind of have to ask it because I know there'll be a bunch of people listening who are like, ask Sean about this. Um, so during an interview with uh, Mass, uh, Max Moskowitz yesterday on YouTube, uh, Lou Elizondo alluded to a UAP presence at Chernobyl. And I wondered if you knew anything about that um, or why Lou maybe thought that. Um, um, yeah. I'm going to say yes, but only in a third party uh, fashion, like, you know, like we've heard about other sightings, et cetera. I have nothing official to say about it, but um, Lou has a different network. Uh, he, he's involved in different networks and gets different information from folks than I do. So um, I do know this, that if, if Lou said that there, was, um, that there was activity that falls into the category of UAP in and around the area of Chernobyl, I, I believe that. Awesome. Thank you. Are you done, Dan? Yeah. Is that, is yeah, that okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> no, that's a good yeah. question. And do you know what? I, people might have been looking going, why am I not asking about the interview Lou just done last night? I haven't seen it yet. It was that close and yeah life gets also, in the way also i would make a point no, sean no. isn't low 
you know, uh, yeah. as close as friends they are. Um, I respect that they are two different people and that sometimes you might just get an answer of... I occasionally him. get to Kinda watch like his interviews. But the, I mean, before this rush started, I watch all of his interviews. Um, but now I can't, I can barely keep up. So... Well, on behalf of everyone else as well, you're doing a great job, Sean. It's uh, and that's not just me saying that as a friend and everything, but um, it's, it's great to see you talking. You're a very popular character. I joked with Dan in my intro. I was going to <laughs> mention you're the Dave Grohl of uh, UFOs because you seem universally liked, popular, and uh, you seem to have a lot of chat show hosts falling in love with you um, on the air and declaring their the love for your voice and everything as well so keep up what you're doing and uh, i really do want to have you back on as soon as possible once you've had a break though because you do need that as well and some family time so uh, to finish off well, you guys are my friends. Um, i hope that doesn't upset anyone in the areas of us being unbiased but you guys are my friends i know the three of us have no problem disagreeing with each other if we need to um but i love you guys man i will andy open Anytime you want me that I can schedule in for you and Dan anytime. And that's not an invitation I'm extending to the rest of the world. You, you and I, and the three of us, we've been in this from the beginning and um, we're going to be in it until the end. man. So I appreciate you. Thank you. Awesome. Dan, thank you. Sean, thank you. Can't wait. And we'll speak again soon. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. I helped up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should because it doesn't really scare me. Consider your space, consider your life.